this morning we're starting a new series. We're going to be looking through the book of Joel. And uh, the book of Joel, I, I always enjoy when we have the opportunity to go through books like this because the book of Joel falls into a category of, of books of the Bible that doesn't get focused on a lot. It's not one of those books that, that we hear emphasized a lot, although it's quoted from several times in the New Testament. But the book of Joel is, it's a smaller book. It's one of the, the minor prophets that we see in the Old Testament. It tends to be one of those books, like I said, that, that gets skipped over. But for the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Joel together, and we're going to be talking about the righteousness of God. We're going to be talking about repentance. We're going to be talking about restoration that ultimately only God can facilitate. And this morning, we're also talking about the fact that there are times that God gets our attention in a big way. And that's what we're looking at today, when God gets our attention in a big way. So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Joel chapter 1. We're in Joel chapter 1 today. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 of Joel chapter 1. And this is what it says in that portion of Scripture. Joel chapter 1, starting with verse 1. It says this, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for the privilege that you have given us today to be able to look at it together and to meditate on its content. Lord, we're grateful for your goodness, we're grateful for your love, and we're grateful for the things that you use a portion of Scripture like this to remind us of. Lord, we see your righteousness, and we see a call to repentance. And Lord, we're grateful that as we go throughout the book of Joel, that we'll also see restoration. And Lord, we know that you divinely orchestrate these sorts of things, and that you have our good in mind as you do this. But Lord, sometimes it can be a very painful process that we go through while you're getting our attention. So Lord, we pray that you'd help us to pay attention to what you have for us in this portion of your word today, and that by your grace that we would grow together as a result. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for the privilege to be able to look at these things together. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So I think it's helpful when we're going through a portion of Scripture like this, when we're going through a book of the Bible, particularly a book of the Bible that probably most of us haven't spent a lot of time reading throughout the course of our lives, we take a brief look at kind of the background of what was going on at this particular time. So this book, it's called Joel. It's named Joel because it was written by Joel, who's referred to here as the son of Pethuel. And it's interesting because you look at Joel, and we see a little bit about him in this book, but he's a prophet of the Lord that we know very little about. Now, he had a great name for a prophet. Do you know what the name Joel means? It means Yahweh is God. So that's a great name for a prophet. Yahweh is God. Joel, that's what his name means. And when you look at his preaching throughout the course of this short book, it's not a very long book, but he's directing his preaching toward Judah. And if you know anything about the way Israel was set up during this particular time, you have Israel and Judah, the northern and southern kingdom of Israel. So you have the ten tribes of Israel that are part of the northern kingdom, and you have two tribes that form off that, that form um, the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. And he was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. But people aren't 100% certain when this book was written. So I've seen estimates from 835 B.C. all the way up to about 536 or 586 B.C., I should say. Somewhere in that range. People aren't 100% certain. And the reason they're not 100% certain exactly when it's written is because in the book, there isn't something that tells you a historical uh, date or, or an event related to a king. So you don't know what, kind of, what king he was ministering under. And if you don't know what king he's ministering under, it's very hard to pinpoint the year. And so people guess that it could be as early as 835 B.C., or it might be as late as 586 B.C., but we're not 100% certain. But in this book, even though it's brief, you have Joel talking about some very relevant things that all of us, regardless of the season of life that we happen to be at right now, and regardless of the generation that we live in right now, these are very applicable things. He talks about God's righteous judgment. He talks about our need for repentance, and when you look at that from the perspective of Scripture, Scripture teaches us that repentance is an ongoing event in the course of your life and my life as we follow Jesus Christ. And so in this book, we see that emphasized. And again, he also speaks about the future restoration that the Lord has in store. And there's a phrase you'll probably start to pick up on as we go throughout the book of Joel. As we're reading through this book, as we're studying this book Together, you're going to see the phrase, the day of the Lord, mentioned. It's going to be mentioned multiple times, the day of the Lord. And as Joel is prophetically speaking about that day, as he's looking forward to that day, as he's thinking about that day, as he's trying to illustrate some uh, you know, issues related to that day, what he's doing is he's speaking of a future time of God's judgment on sin and how that's going to play out on earth and how that's going to play out in our individual lives. And by the way, the concept of the day of the Lord is not, it's not just mentioned here in Joel. It's mentioned elsewhere in Scripture as well. You see in places like Second uh, Thessalonians 2, it's mentioned. We also see in Second Peter chapter 3, the day of the Lord is mentioned. So it's clear that the Lord wants us to be aware of the fact that that day is absolutely coming. But now think about the portion of Scripture I just read a moment ago, and we'll review some of those verses uh, again in just a moment here. But as this book opens, you can see that the Lord is trying to make us aware of this reality, this idea of the day of the Lord. And to aid us in understanding what's coming, we're given the imagery here 
we're given a particular imagery that's intended to get our attention in a big way. So let me ask this before we even kind of pick apart the details of these verses. Have you ever experienced a season where you could tell beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Lord was trying to get your attention? Have you ever experienced that? A season where it becomes abundantly clear to you that the Lord is trying to get your attention. He's trying to get your ears to perk up and your eyes to widen. There's something He wants you to see. There's something He wants you to hear. When that happened, when you could tell that God was trying to get your attention, how did you respond to Him in those moments? How did you respond? And by way of application, I think it's useful for us to look at this portion of Scripture that we're looking at today and ask the question, how does this Scripture encourage us to respond to God? as he's trying to open up our eyes to see things that we were missing before. And let me show you a few things that this portion of Scripture brings up that I think are worth noting. As this Scripture opens up, and you have these things being addressed, one of the things, as the Lord's trying to get our attention, one of the things that he also wants us to do in response to him getting our attention isn't to just hold this detail or these details in our mind, and just ponder them, but he also wants us to convey them. Specifically, he wants us to convey his word and his work to our children. Look at what it says in the first few verses. I'll reread them. It says this in verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, and he says in verse 2, hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children to another generation what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Now let's pause there for just a moment. So again, I mentioned this just a moment ago, but I'll reiterate it. The book of Joel, it's one of the shorter books of the Bible. It's one of the smaller books of the Bible. It's rather brief. But you could see right away that it's trying to convey a very powerful message that we're supposed to be, that we're supposed to be noticing, that we're supposed to see what the hand of God can actually facilitate among us. And you have, you have the Lord speaking to Joel, and he's speaking through Joel, and he uses this occasion as he's speaking through him to communicate something powerful to the people of the southern kingdom of Israel, the people of Judah. And what was taking place at that time was a severe locust plague. And that severe locust plague had, it had afflicted Judah, and God was using that as an occasion to try and get their attention and to draw a parallel about what He was going to do by way of judgment at a future date. Now, have you ever been in the midst of a swarm of insects? I used to work at a camp in, uh, near Flemington, New Jersey, um, that, uh, that it just had the, the worst gnats the summers I worked there. And you just got so used to just walking around with your hand up in the air, hoping that they would just swarm to that hand. And you would look, and they would just be flying around and buzzing around your hand, and, and then a little bit in your face, and it was a bit torturous. But I got a, a, a friend of mine posted a picture recently of something that just this summer took place in Las Vegas. Anyone see any news from Las Vegas and what they were dealing with there? Take a look at this picture. Do you know what that is? Do you think that? Yeah, it's grasshoppers. They had a, a grasshopper invasion in Las Vegas uh, over the past few months. Look at that. So they took this at night, and you could see them. It's, I mean, it's just like raining grasshoppers 
um, just around this light and everywhere. I mean, just think about that as you're walking, as you're trying to get in your car. Picture yourself trying to get in your car. Um, you know, the other day there was mud along the side of my car, and I was trying not to step in it so I didn't track it into the car. Do you think there's any potential of not stepping in squished grasshoppers and then tracking that in your car? And how do you think that would smell? And what do you think that'd be like? And, and, you know, normally we clean leaves out of our gutters. And in Las Vegas this summer, they've been cleaning grasshoppers out of their gutters. And it's just a, a torturous thing. Well, that's a picture that's been coming to my mind as I prepare to preach through this book. Because when you look at this particular scripture, we're told here of a locust invasion. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a locust, but basically a locust is a species of grasshopper. And it has the ability to swarm, and they tend to swarm big. So they swarm. When they come in, they, they swarm big. And they have the habit of devouring large amounts of vegetation as they swarm and move place to place, looking for more to devour. So when a plague of locusts would come, when their swarm would be big, and they would come in, they would devastate an area. In short order, imagine if you lived in an agricultural economy. And all of a sudden, you have a mega swarm of devouring locusts come through. And in short order, they've eaten up everything you've tried to produce. They've eaten up everything. They've made an absolute mess of everything you've invested all of your time and your money and your effort in. I actually read this week. Imagine this. I don't even know how some of this is possible. But there are evidences in recent years of locusts when they've come through. We think of them eating vegetation, but they seem to eat everything. There's evidence of them eating plastics and even evidence of them coming through and eating things made of metal. So imagine that. Not only your vegetation, but also you know things that you wouldn't even anticipate an insect to come through and eat. Plastics, metal in our day. You know What kind of damage were they doing back in this time that Joel is writing about. Well, they came through and they, they absolutely devastated this agricultural economy. And so at the time of Joel's writing, you have these locusts. They've just devoured the vegetation. They've just devoured the crops of the people of Judah. And as, the, as you can imagine, as a result, their economy was now suffering. And think about the trickle-down effect that this would have. Their economy in general is suffering. Their animals are now suffering because what do you have to feed the animals? you don't have something to feed the animals, what happens to the animals? Well, then the animals die. And if your animals are dying, even things like being able to get milk and things of that nature goes away. And if your animals are dying, well, you can only eat them once, right? If you have no vegetation to eat, now you've got to eat the animals. But the animals themselves are dying because they have no vegetation to eat. And as a result, everything is just kind of dying around them. And the people are starting to starve. So they're hurt financially, but they're also hurt physically. Everything around them was suffering. This event was so severe that the Scripture indicates that it was unlike anything that generation of people had ever witnessed. It was unlike anything they had ever seen. But through this event, see, the Lord doesn't waste anything. He doesn't waste anything. He doesn't waste anything, any event, any trial, any experience you've ever had in your life. The Lord will not waste it. And He doesn't waste this event either. And through this event, what God was doing is He he was trying to get the attention of His people in a big way. And He wanted them to be sure to convey what He was teaching them through this occurrence to their children and to their grandchildren and to their grandchildren's children. Multiple generations, he's saying, convey this to your children, convey this to your grandchildren, make sure it's heard. 
Make sure it's known. Make sure these details get passed along to those who come after you. Have you ever considered just how vital your influence is on your children? It's huge. And sometimes we minimize it, but it's huge. Our influence on our children and even their children, our influence is huge. From whom do most children, or we could just say this of any people, from, from whom do most people learn about God? From whom do, do most learn about God? Or, or even form their image in their mind of, of what they think God is like from their parents. From where do most Christians trace their understanding of the gospel? It wouldn't surprise me if for most, probably not all, but for most of us gathered in this room, it was probably either your mother or your father or your grandparents that shared the gospel with you and modeled the gospel with you. Who has the opportunity in that line to model what it looks like to have a vibrant relationship with Jesus in the kind of way that sticks in our minds and in our hearts? Who's being observed constantly? It's parents. It's grandparents. Parents and grandparents tend to be one of the, they tend to be the people with the greatest roles of influence in a child's life. And here you have the Lord saying, convey this to your children and to their children. Make sure what's taking place. Make sure what I'm doing. Make sure that the message that I'm trying to get your attention to convey, make sure it doesn't just stick in your mind, but tell it to the people who weren't here for these original events. Tell it to those who didn't see what you had the opportunity to see so that they know about it and so that they recognize my hand at work. And in our context... You know, even though we're reading a piece of ancient literature here, it still speaks to us powerfully right here and now. So in our context, the principle that's being communicated here is a principle that we would be wise to adopt, meaning that we're also being called to convey the work and the Word of God to our children and to our grandchildren. Well, how do we do that? Sometimes we overcomplicate it, but let me just suggest a couple simple things. I think we're called to establish intentional patterns in our homes whereby this can be accomplished. I think I've mentioned this a few times here, but one of the intentional patterns that we're trying to establish in our home is that in the evening at some point when we're all gathered together, particularly now that our children are older and they all have jobs and they're all doing all sorts of things, but in the evening there's this point of the day where we're all together in the same spot. And when we do that, when we're gathered together in that spot, I consider it my responsibility to sit down and read Scripture with our family or to read something based on Scripture that will point their hearts to Christ and convey wisdom. And we do that, and then we take turns praying for each other in the application of what we've just read. But in those moments, we're conveying something that the Lord wants to see conveyed. I think it's valuable not just to be people who read the Bible, but to be people who read the Bible out loud with our family. Praying together. I think that's another important thing. Even before we take long trips, one of the things that we're trying to do is to just take a moment and say, Lord, would you grant us safety as we're on our journey here? How about this? Confess to each other. Last night as we were sit sitting around our family room, one of the things that we did was we confessed some things to each other. We confessed areas of struggle. We confessed areas of weakness. Areas where we felt like we were uh, at times deceived 
by Satan. We confess that. You know what happens when you confess things like that? They lose their power over you. When you bring things out into the light, it loses its power over you, and it also invites the people you confessed it to to hold you accountable. You've just said, keep me accountable with this. But we remind one another of the goodness, grace, judgment, and mercy of God. And here you have Joel being encouraged, tell the people of Judah to convey these things to their children and to their grandchildren. Well, there's something else here that I think is useful for us to notice, and that's this. This, this counsel, this advice that they were given that we should apply as well to wake up from our slumber and our distractions. Look at what it says in verse 5 down to verse 7. It says, Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Let me show you a picture here. See this picture? I don't know how well you can read it. Can you read what that says right there? Knobles. Now, I haven't said a ton about Knobles this summer, but I tend to do that a lot. So I tried to hold back. But we didn't get a chance to go to Knobles very much this summer, except the other day we had the chance to go. And each year we've been going kind of mid, mid-August. And uh, we're like, let's see how many people we can get to be there on the same day. So I was looking at pictures a few years ago. We had like, like 10 or 12 people. I think last year we had maybe about 15. This year, 37 of us gathered together at Knobles at the same time. So you've got some of my pastor friends and their family. We've got the Thomases right over here enjoying Knobles. Um, this guy and his wife right here, they're from Florida, so they win the pin for furthest traveled. But you know why we love Knobles so much? Here are my 37 favorite reasons. I'll just give you a few. I'll give you one primarily. It's, my, it's kind of like my favorite distraction. Because you're there, you're in your own world. Do you have something like that? Holly, I saw your Ocean City. Is that right? You know, that's one, Ocean City. You know, Seth, I saw some of your pictures from Alaska that you could probably frame and, and decorate your house with. You know, I mean, like, they, they look, it looked beautiful. You know, don't we all kind of have a thing like that? Right? You know, something that we like, a place we've been or a place we like to go to that just for a little bit you like to check out. And that's kind of why we like going there. We like to float around. Frank, you know that area. You used to live right up there in Ashland, I think, right? Wasn't it Ashland? It's right down the road from there. You just kind of float around there, and you just walk in. It's free to walk in. You know, they don't charge you for admission. They don't charge you for parking. And they charge you normal prices for food, but yet they've got some of the best food going. A friend of mine, this guy right here, Fred, he said to me when we talked him into coming with us the day before, he said, well, you know, how's the food? And all of us that have been there were like, Fred, how's the food? How's the food? You know, by the end of the day, he's like, okay, no, food's good. It's really good here. But we all have those moments where we like to check out. But have you ever noticed that, that while we like to check out, it's healthy if you do that in moderation. It's healthy if you do that, you know, for a day here and there, for a week here and there. You know, you take a moment, you interrupt your routine, you kind of refresh, and then what do you do? You get back to reality. You can't stay in the fantasy forever. Their slogan used to be fun, food, and fantasy at Knobles. Well, you can't stay in the fantasy forever. You can stay and visit for a day or maybe a few days, but you can't stay in the fantasy forever because eventually 
we need to wake up from our slumber. We need to wake up from our distractions. And I think we all know people who would rather live in the midst of their fantasy than to come to terms with reality. And there are all kinds of diversions that you and I probably have a propensity to, to drift to that can either facilitate slumber or distraction for us. So some of us, maybe we choose to distract ourselves with media, and some of us maybe video games or, or sports or, or even substances. But there comes a time when we need to wake from our slumber and our distractions. But I will say this. Next year, August 14th, the Thomases in our family, we were talking about this. August 14th, next year, at the end of the summer, mark that date off, and let's make that number bigger than 37, all right? It's only three hours away. Are you going to join us? Three hours away, August 14th, mark it down. Let's beat 37. It's fun to be there for a day, but then what do we do? We wake up from our slumber. We wake up from our distractions. Now, I get the, the, the impression that the people of Judah weren't any different from what we're like. So in our day, the majority of people treat God like an afterthought. And a minority possess the understanding that He's present with us and that He's concerned for our well-being. And here you have, under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, you have Joel. He challenged the people of Judah to wake up from their slumber and to wake up from their drunkenness so that they could actually begin to see what God was doing in the midst of their generation. And ironically, now that their vineyards had all been destroyed, they'd be forced to wake up from their drunkenness because they no longer had, had vines that could produce wine or the sweet wine that's described here. He's saying, you know, you're being forced to wake up from your slumber. You're being forced to wake up from your drunkenness. Again, have you ever experienced a season where God gave you a distinct wake-up call? A distinct wake-up call. How did He facilitate waking you up? I've had those moments in my life. By the way, when I was growing up as a child, if I didn't want to get out of bed, my mother would say this, I'm going to come into this room in five minutes. If you're not up, I'm going to have a cup of water with me. That cup of water is going to be dumped on your head if you don't get out of that bed. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah. And I don't know why I didn't take her seriously sometimes when she would say that, but then she'd come in with a cup of water if I was still laying in bed. Enjoy your bath, son, Right? And she would do that, and it's like, Mom, I hate when you do that. And she's like, and I hate when you take a long time to get up. So, let's make this a win-win. Get out of bed. Wake up. Has God ever used a difficult season in your life to remind you of your need for His presence? Have you ever gone through a stretch, it's particularly difficult, time of transition, a time of pain, a time of trauma, something like that, that He used to remind you of your need for His presence in your life? Or has He ever used, those of you that are parents, has He ever used an event or an experience in the lives of your children to remind you of the need for His intervention and the need for His power? I have to tell you, uh, my wife and I think that we pray with even more intentionality and deeper you know, groanings of prayer now that we have children than we did before. Because your heart is on the outside of your body the second you start to have kids. And you pray on their behalf. You seek God's intervention. You seek His power on their behalf. How is He waking us from our sleep? How is He waking us from our slumber? How is He waking us from our distractions? That's what He was trying to do for the people of Judah as a favor. And I doubt that they thought that this was a favor. But He's trying to do this for their benefit. So that ultimately they would recognize their need for Him. Now look at how this awakens a need for Him. Look at what the Scripture teaches us when we look at verses 8 through 10. 
Scripture encourages us to allow ourselves to express godly sorrow. Look at what it tells us in verses 8 to 10. It says, Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Here you see mourning, right? We see, we see grief. We see lament. Recently, very recently actually, through tears, a friend of mine was telling me kind of a, a very painful um, event in his life or an occurrence that took place. He went through a season in his late teens and in his early 20s where he, in his own admission, was torturous to his father. Extremely difficult for his dad. In little areas and in, and in big areas, he would make his father's life very difficult. He would, he would crush him emotionally. He would disobey in all sorts of ways. He would rebel every chance he got, and he started taking his life down a very, very dark path. Later in his 20s, he came to know the Lord, and somewhere in that period of time, his father started dying. And he was telling us the other day, through tears, of that experience, watching his father die, but then also feeling the need to talk to his dad in the midst of those moments. And one of the things he said that he said to his father was, Dad, I'm sorry for the trouble that I caused you. I'm sorry for the pain that I put you through. I know that it was severe at times. I know that I broke your heart repeatedly. But he said, Dad, I, I just want to know, in the midst of that, you knew that I loved you, right? You knew that I loved you. And his dad said back to him, he said, Absolutely. I always knew. Absolutely. I always knew. But you look at that, and I know for the, that for my friend that was a painful experience for him to go through, but it's interesting how healthy it can be when we allow ourselves to express a godly sorrow. Expressing sorrow isn't something that I think naturally we're excited about doing. I know generally speaking, at least in my own life, I think it's fair to say that I prefer to express feelings of happiness. You know, I would prefer to tell you, uh, you know, about seasons in my life or moments in my life that, it, that elicited happiness within me, more so than moments that I felt were sorrowful. And I think that that's probably a preference that most of us share. But here, when you look at this Scripture and some of the related Scriptures, Scripture speaks of a sorrow that's quite healthy for us to both embrace and express. A godly sorrow. Look at what it tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. There it says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So there's this godly sorrow that Scripture speaks about that brings about repentance, that leads to salvation, and it doesn't produce regret, it leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow, Scripture tells us, brings death. So we may not always realize it in the moment, but sorrow can be an extremely healthy thing for us. Consider how this Scripture, 2 Corinthians 7.10, how it tells us that sorrow impacts the nature of of our relationship with the Lord. At one point, we were doing our own thing. We were living in ignorance to the sacrificial love of God that had been shown to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered and died on the cross in order to take our sin upon Himself 
and atone for what we had done, but we spent all our time, before recognizing that, we spent all our time acting as if He had never done anything for us. And then the day comes when the Lord opens our eyes and He makes us able to see the nature of our sin. And He makes us able to see the depth of our unrighteousness, the the offense to His righteousness that we were embracing. He helps us to see the pain that Christ endured to pay for what we had done. And then we're allowed to experience or given the privilege to experience this godly sorrow. We become sorrowful for how we've sinned against our loving Father. And we repent of our sin. And Scripture tells us that now through faith in Jesus Christ, we experience the joy of salvation and the new life that He's secured for us through His resurrection from the dead. God desires that humanity experience this great blessing. And you can see His heart conveyed here through the words that He speaks through Joel to the people of Judah about these very things. They were encouraged to lament. They were encouraged to mourn with the ultimate intent that they, would, that they would turn to the Lord and that they would once again seek His power and that they would once again seek His presence in their lives. In a personal way, let me ask this. Have we personally allowed ourselves to express this kind of godly sorrow, the kind of sorrow that Scripture encourages God's people to express? Have we been compelled to repent of our sin and to repent of our unbelief? Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. One last thing that uh, this portion from the book of Joel brings up that is where we're going to finish up today, and that's this. We're encouraged here to admit the unpleasant so we could prepare to address it. Look at verses 11 and 12. There it says this, Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of man. So the locusts that are spoken of here in this chapter, they had destroyed the land of Judah in a very abrupt way. And it appears that the people of Judah prior to that had become rather complacent. They were complacent in their riches. They didn't foresee something like this coming. Uh, It's also clear that their complacency had become an excuse for them to live as if the Lord was distant from them. God was barely an afterthought in their minds. That's how they were living. But now it was time for them, in a very healthy way, it was time for them to admit the unpleasant. It was time for them to admit that they were trying to do life on their own, without God's help. It was time for them to admit that the, that the faith that they had once placed in their abundance of food, their abundant harvests, their healthy livestock, that that was faith that was misplaced because the objects of their misplaced faith were now being taken away from them so that they could show that ultimately they needed to place their faith in the Lord who is not taken away in that regard, in the Lord who remains with His children in the midst of adversity. Do you like old jokes? Anyone like old jokes? All right, I see. Carol, you like old jokes? All right. This is just for Carol then. Four preachers. They met for a friendly gathering. During the conversation, one preacher said, Our people come to us, they pour out their hearts, they confess certain sins and needs. Let's do the same. Let's do the same. Confession is good for the soul. So in due time, 
all agreed. It took them a little while to get there, but eventually they all agreed. So one confessed. He said, you know what? I really like going to movies. And uh, sometimes I sneak off when I'm supposed to be at church, and I go to the movies. And they're like, oh, okay. Second one confessed to liking to smoke cigars. He said, I know I shouldn't do it. I know it's not a good habit, but I really, really like smoking cigars. And so I try and sneak cigars now and then. And they're like, all right, brother, okay. The third one confessed, he said, I really like playing cards. I know I shouldn't play cards. I know I shouldn't gamble. He's like, man, I really, really like playing cards. And then it came time for the fourth guy to confess, and they looked at him, and he wouldn't say anything. Like, come on, brother, it's your turn. It's your turn to confess. The other said, look, we confessed ours. We were transparent before you. We confessed. We told you our most embarrassing things. It's time for you to tell us your secret. It's time for you to tell us your vice. So finally he answered, and he said, it's gossiping, and I can hardly wait to get out of here. That's an old joke. I've heard that a bunch of times, but sorry for those of you. Some of you are looking like this. Some of you are laughing. They're not all winners, all right? But sometimes we got to admit the unpleasant, right? We got to admit the unpleasant so that we can move past it, so we could prepare to address it. At least they were trying to admit the unpleasant to each other. But here's the thing. Sometimes God gets our attention in big ways because small ways won't suffice. Sometimes God gets our attention in big ways because a small way just won't do. Sometimes it takes a financial emergency to get our attention. Sometimes it takes a health crisis. Sometimes it takes a family need. Sometimes it takes a relationship strain so that we will start to pay attention. And it wouldn't surprise me to discover that some of you that gather faithfully together week after week to worship the Lord in this context, you trace back why you decided as an adult to start doing this it wouldn't surprise me to find a season where God got your attention in a big way that reminded you of your need for Him and now you value His presence and you value gathering together with other believers to worship Him. Do you think we could start admitting unpleasant things so that we could start addressing them? Or do you think, just as individuals or even collectively as a group, that we would prefer to remain in our just in our our world of fantasy so that we could avoid dealing with the things that we actually need to deal with in our day-to-day lives? Are we ready to experience the long-term benefits of things like godly sorrow? Are are, Are we ready to wake up from our slumber and from our distractions? Let me ask this as a final question. Would we like to be able to testify to our children and to the generations of children that come from our children, of the difference Christ made in our lives once we finally stopped ignoring Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for the privilege that You've given us to be able to gather together and and just think about some of the things that You've conveyed in Your Word. Lord, it's, it's so interesting to be able to look at a book like Joel and to recognize that this is something that was written maybe 2,500 years ago, maybe 2,800 years ago. We're not even really certain. But we do know that people are people, and we have a propensity to kind of look at the blessings that you've given us and, and maybe try to find our source of comfort or some sort of sustenance from very temporary things instead of recognizing 
that, Father, if we have you through your Son, Jesus Christ, we have everything that we truly need. The things that this world offers us are so temporary. They're so finite. They're so momentary. And all it takes is a locust plague to come and hit an area. And those things can go away quickly. And so you got the attention of the people in Joel's time, the people of Judah. You got their attention in a big way and in a very quick way, a very abrupt way. And Lord, we recognize that there are certainly times in our lives where, where you've probably done the very same thing for us. But Lord, we pray that it wouldn't require, that our attention to you wouldn't require you doing something as drastic as that, that we would get into the habit of listening to your voice, that we wouldn't become complacent Christians, but that we would be people who live recognizing that this godly sorrow leads to repentance, leaves no room for us to, to ultimately be filled with regrets if we're following you. There's no regret in following you. And so, Lord, we pray that we would put you first in all areas of our lives and that that would be the testimony that we would convey to everyone we interact with, that as people interact with us, that as they see us, that as they converse with us, that they would see that your Son, Jesus Christ, is Lord of our lives. And we pray that we would intentionally convey that truth to our children. We pray that we would intentionally convey that truth and model it for our grandchildren and that there would be a great harvest of righteousness that comes forth from the lives of those gathered together in this room as we use our lives to testify to who you are and what you do. So, Lord, thank you for these reminders today as we've looked at this portion of your word. We pray that by your grace and through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would put these things into practice. We love you, Lord, and we commit ourselves to you now and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.